Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is an associate professor of management information systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia, and visiting professor at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Ted Harrington, executive partner at Independent Security Evaluators, and he is also the author of Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right. His company, made up of ethical hackers, was born out of the PhD program at the Johns Hopkins University. They have been doing security assessments and security consulting for a long time for both large enterprises and funded startups and everyone in between. Since 2005, they have been hired by hundreds of companies and they have helped discover tens of thousands of security vulnerabilities. Their work has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, USA Today, Financial Times, Wired, and CBS News on Assignment. Hey, Ted, welcome. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So um, let's talk about hacking. Um, For the benefit of the listeners, provide an overview of hacking, like Hacking 101. What is it? What are the many consequences? Sure. So... I like this question a lot because the concept of hacking and the concept of hackers is pretty misunderstood. So maybe we start there. Like what is, what is hacking? What is a hacker? And a lot of times people talk about this idea, you know, hackers as if they're bad, right? That hackers are malicious or associated with wrongdoing or evil or whatever. And that's only partly true because that's a certain that is certainly a type of hacker but hackers the the term hacker is neutral it's neither good nor bad it's a hacker is someone who's a problem solver they're creative they're someone who looks at the way a system works and says you know can it behave differently than what it was intended to do um can i create something so that's really what hackers are and then the fork in the road comes to motivation Right. So if someone is doing this because they want to uh, obtain some sort of personal gain, they want to harm others. That's what attackers would be, certainly. Um, But the other fork to the road are ethical hackers, people who do the same things, use the same tools, the same techniques, still want to find those uh, issues with how a system works. But they do it because they want to fix the system. They want to make it better. They want to improve it. And that's the corner of the world that uh, I come from, that our our people all come from and both are hackers so really fundamentally that's what hacking is hacking is looking at something and saying you know can it behave differently and there's this uh classic tv series um called macgyver that you know maybe younger generations might not be familiar with i've never even actually really seen macgyver myself um but i'm very familiar with the concept of macgyver and he's you know this dude who would just he'd 
create things out of he'd take things that were supposed to do one thing and make them do something else like if there was one episode where he i think he needed to uh start a car or something and he took a paper clip which the purpose of a paper clip is to clip together paper and he used this to like somehow you know ignite the engine in a vehicle that's a hacker that's someone who says you know a thing's supposed to work in a certain way can i make it behave differently and then motivation determines uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing that's interesting. That's an interesting way of looking at hacking. I never thought about it as hackers, as problem solvers, but I see from where you're coming. With the growing expansion of attack surfaces and evolution of attack vectors, it's hard for organizations to keep up with the latest hacking methods and techniques. And that's why companies often hire organizations that are made up of ethical hackers to help them stay on top of information security management to the extent possible. So shed some light on why hackers might be interested in breaching systems of certain types of organizations over others. If that's the case, that may not be the case. And related to that, are any organization types more vulnerable than others. Yeah, let's let's tackle those separately because they are two two slightly different questions, but that can be conflated. So, why would an attacker attack a specific organization? I think this is a wonderful question, and it goes to the heart of one of the very common misunderstandings that people have about attackers. Most people think that this idea of we've already broken down that there's you know hackers can be good or hackers can be bad, but even amongst the bad hackers, they're not all the same thing. But we often talk about them as if they're all the same thing, and that's actually not true. So different attacker groups, they're motivated to achieve different outcomes. So the most common one, almost everybody talks about hackers as being profit motivated. And that is indeed a very compelling motivation for many types of attackers. I mean, basically anyone who engages in ransomware profits the motive. Almost everyone. There's, there's cases where maybe you use that to hide your other motive but so someone who wants to make money that's like organized crime as an example they are attacking because they want to make money but then you've got groups that are more interested in notoriety right so maybe it's someone who just they want to prove they can do it or they want to be able to brag about it or they want to yeah they just they want the notoriety associated with it uh that's a different motivation from someone who maybe like anonymous the hacker collective that uh, fits in the group of what are called hacktivists, which they attack organizations in order to make a statement. And then there's nation states that attack organizations in order to pursue their geopolitical objectives. And so when we think about different attackers having different motivations, that comes into play in terms of how we now think about how we defend, because we think about, well, what are we trying to protect? And is what we have something that an attacker could pursue their specific motivation for. So they want to steal, like a lot of companies, they'll say, well, I don't have anything valuable. I don't protect any valuable data. So no one's going to attack me because I don't have valuable data. No one's going to be able to make money off of attacking me. And hopefully what I just illustrated makes it clear that that's actually not the case. You know, you might not have valuable data, but maybe you have, maybe your organization can be swept up in a botnet. Uh, your computational power can be used in a broader uh, DDoS type attack. Maybe 
your organization has some sort of influential information on maybe population trends or things that are happening on a national level that another nation might want to understand. So we have to understand the attacker, why they're motivated in order to help ourselves think about what do we, why would someone attack us? Very true, very true. We hear this phrase, thinking like a hacker a lot. The ability to think like a hacker is considered a best practice in cybersecurity governance. I'd like to probe a little deeper into it. Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely one of those people who's out there banging this drum. <clears throat> I say this to anyone who will listen. That, uh, yeah, to defend against an attacker, we need to think like an attacker. Um, and this, this idea more generally, you know, think like a hacker, whether that's a you know, good type of hacker or a bad type of hacker. This is absolutely mission critical for organizations to be able to secure their what it is whatever it is they're trying to protect the most they really need to think like um someone who would attack a system and that's not very easy actually to do and most people aren't wired that way i often think of this like the movie the matrix um maybe this is a little bit of a spoiler but the movie's been out for like 25 years so if you haven't seen it yet that's on you that i'm spoiling it um you know you find out part way through this movie that you know everyone who's living normal life like we live normal life uh, you know here on earth um all of a sudden you're actually in a simulation and when you unplug from the matrix you realize you're you're now living reality but the reality is really ugly. You're in this like post-apocalyptic world and it's like everything cold. Your food is basically like eating dust. It's just, it's a terrible life, but you have freedom. And I often think of that's what it's like once you can think like a hacker is like, once you unplug from the matrix and you see kind of all the darkness in the world, there's no going back. And so it's not for everybody. Not Everybody should not think that, everybody doesn't have the capability to see the world that way. And most people probably don't want to see the world that way, but those of us, who are engaged in this as a profession or even as a hobby, this is the way that we see it. And the reason that this is important is, I guess think of it like, um, what's any metaphor? I don't know, think of a sports metaphor, right? If you're, if you're playing against an opponent coming up this weekend, how are they gonna think about their plan to, to try to win the game against you, right? You have to put yourself in the shoes of your opponent in order to be able to understand how will you uh, like what's, what's the lens through which they see you and how will you be attacked? And that's why this idea of thinking like a hacker is really, really important because again, to use a sports metaphor, like when, when we think as defenders, that's sort of like someone who's, you know, playing basketball and they're, uh, they're playing defense on their heels, right? And so anyone who's played really any ball sports, any team sports knows that if your weight is on your heels, it's really, really hard to react to the ball coming at you. And so the advice is you always have to be on your toes. You have to be leaning forward, not leaning backwards. And so when we think of like defenders, we're leaning backwards. We're sort of like waiting for the world to come to us, but that makes it really hard to react. Instead, we should be leaning forward. We should be on our toes and we should be thinking like, hey, we're actually on the offense, not on the defense. And that's what Think Like a Hacker helps you do. And, and, and so, uh, you know, as you said, that you don't expect everyone to think like a hacker. Now, maybe the, the cybersecurity professionals in the organization who are paid to, um, you know, be proactive, make recommendations on how to secure the organization from new attack types, maybe they are the ones who should be thinking like a hacker. But I'm just curious to know, 
your thoughts and perspectives on the other group, the folks who generally get compromised. They are not very security savvy. They learn as best they can what they're told by the organization. Mm -hmm. For those folks, obviously they are not the type that you would recommend think like a hacker, but what advice do you have for them? Yeah, so as you can, as you're gonna see throughout the course, I'm a big on metaphors. So let's let's use the metaphor of someone who builds skyscrapers, right? So that particular type of contractor that takes a specific skill set developed over a long period of time, you know how to build a skyscraper. Now, if someone comes to you and says, "Hey, we've got this other skyscraper over here, and we need to demo it, we need to demolish it," um, you know how these things you build these things all day. Can you demolish this one? They'd be like, "Uh." maybe like I guess I know the fundamentals of how it's built but like that's not what I do that's not my profession that's not my chosen craft so what do they do they say well why don't we get a demo expert in here to do the demo and I'll work with them and I'll say you know we'll we'll talk through the mechanics of this building and um and and that's how we'll have a successful demolition but they're two completely different crafts so the first piece of advice is you need to work with somebody like you're the builder, you need to work with the breaker, right? So companies who are out there building whatever system that you're building, you definitely want to work with ethical hackers because they help you because they bring that expertise that as you correctly noted, um, isn't necessarily the core part of what it is that you're doing. It's, it's similar to like any expertise that you would partner with externally. So companies all the time will partner with, um, you know, outside counsel, outside accountants, outside, uh, you know, pick your expertise. They'll they'll say, hey, you're going to come and sort of be the surgical strike that does this specific thing that we don't actually fully staff in house. So that's the first thing is, you know, work with outside um, organizations. Second thing is to uh, even though that that's what has to happen is you have to work with outside organizations who specialize in this thing. You want to also make sure that you understand the principles. So if we use that the skyscraper metaphor, right? The guy who, or the guy or the gal who builds a skyscraper should also know where the weaknesses are and know and know how it might crumble if it's not built correctly. Now that doesn't mean they're gonna go out and do demo, but they're gonna know like, hey, this is a, you know, this type of joint stresses in a, in a bad way. We should make sure we don't use that type of joint. And I'm way oversimplifying the practice of building a skyscraper for sure. But you know, it's for illustrative purposes. And so that's the second piece of advice is make sure you understand the principles. So you work with someone else, but still you have to make sure that um, they understand the principles yourself. And then the third is uh, this, it's abstract, but it's keep asking these questions, right? Um, it's you, whatever it is that you do in any profession, your core expertise, you're going to, you know, that's where the focus of your develop, effort developing yourself is going to be. But there's always going to be these things on the periphery that like, oh, I should probably know about that. But maybe I'm not the expert in that. But by asking the questions of what do I need to know about X? So the person who's listening to this right now who builds systems and says, what do I need to know about security? That question is so important and so powerful because just by asking it, it leads you to the type of growth that is necessary in order to make sure you understand the principles, even though the the entity or the person who's going to be responsible for this is going to be someone else. You can't completely um, delegate it to someone else. I agree. 
I wholeheartedly agree. In fact, as you were talking, a thought came to mind. Um, I wish, um, you know, there, there are more demonstrations, visual demonstrations, graphical illustrations, um, and various forms of presentations um, made available to the masses where people get to see how hackers think, how hackers act. And I, I realize that can get very technical, but that's where the skill lies. Can we present the technical stuff in a non-technical way? You, you use metaphors and you, um, you know, kind of talked about several movies. So maybe we need more um, media help here to popularize thinking like a hacker. So, yeah. so everyone on the street literally has some sense of what these guys are up to, how they are thinking, how they try to attack, not to suggest that this would make everyone an expert, but at least it whets the appetite, it gives them a basic understanding, and that would help the organization to mobilize mm -hmm. support uh, from, from all parts of the organization. Thoughts, reactions? Yeah. Uh, well, let me try to illustrate with maybe a metaphor that most people can relate to. Um, most people don't like waiting in line, right? I think that's just, even though everyone does wait in line, like people literally spend money and vacation time to go to places like Disneyland because they want to wait in line all day so they can, you know, wait in line for an hour to take a three minute ride. <laughs> Not for me, but hey, you know, <laughs> whatever floats your boat. But I think, but, mo but most people, even though they wait in those lines, they pay to wait in those lines, they take time off their job to wait in those lines, people would still say they don't like waiting in the line. I think that's sort of a universal human condition. No one, no one is enjoying the line. So let me tell you about a story that uh, I had involving a line. And this, is, this story actually is a form of social engineering, but the components to it describe exactly the process that an attacker would go through. So if we can imagine a bar and the bar is going to be, you know, a bar like a nightclub. Uh, this bar represents our, uh, it represents a, um, uh, a system that someone is building. So I, this was a few years ago, I wound up going to this, this bar and I was meeting up with some friends and I can't remember why I needed to go to this specific bar, but maybe it was like someone's birthday, but I had to go to this one. It wasn't like, we'll just go to another bar. And there was this huge line. And then when you, you get through this whole long line, it takes you half an hour or whatever, then you pay a cover charge to get in. And I didn't want anything to do with either of those. I was like, I don't want to wait in line and then pay, you know, whatever, 20 bucks just, to, just for the right to now go in and I'll spend more money. Um, so I did what, you know, really any hacker minded person does. The first thing I did was I assessed the system. I looked at how does the system work? Okay. Well, there's a line that gets you in and, uh, and then you pay a cover when you're in and that grants you access. But I noticed there's also this other area for a VIP entrance and that VIP entrance, you can only, there's no line, there's no cover, but you can only go in if you're on the list. So that's the second thing I did was I said, all right, well, how can, the challenge question was, how can I make them believe I'm on the list? I'm not on the list, but how can I make them believe it? So that's the second thing that attackers will do. They'll, they'll essentially set out a challenge statement for themselves. Like, what's the goal? What am I trying to do? And in this case, I was trying to get the privileges of someone on the VIP list when I didn't have those privileges. That's called privilege escalation. So 
then the next thing I did was what any attacker would do. I, I probed some, I, I uh, established some assumptions about how the system worked. And my assumption was if I can produce the name of someone on that list, they will assume I'm on the list. So that was my goal. I needed to produce a name on the list. I did not know any names. So here's what I did. So I walk right up to the VIP hostess and I say, hi, I'm on the list. Now, again, I just told you I'm not on, I'm not on the list. She doesn't know this, but I, I'm not on the list. So I said, hi, I'm on the list. So when she asks me what my name is, telling her my name wasn't going to help because I'm not on the list. And guessing is like, what's the chances I guess somebody's name, right? Like it's so low. Why even bother? So I'm not going to guess. So instead, I issue what's called a specially crafted input. Now, this is when an attacker is probing a system to see how it's going to react. And in this case, the specially crafted input was I said, well, I'm with the group. I made an assumption that the there was going to be a group and the group would be on the VIP list. And so when she said which group, again, I didn't, you know, same problems. I didn't know the names of any group. Guessing wasn't going to help. So again, I, asked, I issued another specially crafted input and I said, I'm with the big group. And I was making an assumption that that would be something that would be on the list. There would be one group larger than others. And with that, she looks down at her clipboard. She flips a couple pages and she says, oh, the Smith party? And I said, yes, I am with the Smith party. And with that, I had achieved the goal. I'd associated myself with a name on the list. She opens the velvet rope, escorts me past the line, past the cover charge. And, you know, I went into the bar. Um, I should say as a sidebar, I am an ethical hacker. So even though I did not pay the cover charge, I'm more than made up for it with overtipping my bar staff. Uh, everyone, the only person who lost money that night was probably me. Like everyone made out, but I didn't have to wait in line, which is what I didn't want to do. But the point of that story, whether you like going to bars or not, or you've never even been to a bar, we've all been in situations we don't like waiting in line. And that story can illustrate in a way that I think everyone can relate to the process that attackers go through. Excellent. That's a very, very interesting and telling story. In fact, that reminds me, this is not so much about how hackers hack, but how to be on your guard, to be on your defense. And I wasn't that night where I went to a restaurant at a great city, I won't name it here. And it was a Halloween, I think, and it was a haunted uh, a restaurant. So we were having dinner there That's fine. and uh, the lights were very dim and, you know, they were trying to create that atmosphere. I was with my family. So we had dinner. And then when the waitress came up uh, asking for the credit card, I gave it to her without thinking twice that hmm. I should be scanning the card right there and then and I shouldn't be giving it to somebody. And next moment, uh, well, you know, that night everything went off well. We checked out and um, we had a good night's rest. Next morning, I was driving my son for his tennis match. And then I got a call. I was not planning to take the call. It was an 800 number call, but then I did. I'm glad I did. It was a Bank of America representative asking um, where I was the previous night. And then he was able to share some data and facts that told me that my card got hacked and it was already being used in the state of say California and I was on the eastern part of the country so I knew that somebody had gotten access to it so this is an example where even those of us who are conscious about this phenomenon who play a role 
even they uh, can get caught napping and mm-hmm. they can get compromised and which has happened to me not once but several times and that's all the more i believe the need for uh reiterating reinforcing some fundamental principles some guidelines some recommendations because i believe that the very best of people have been can be or will be breached in the future so that is great um good discussion on that topic switching gears a little bit let's talk about security assessments mm-hmm. it's reasonable to assume that most organizations are engaging in security assessments but the more nuanced question is are they engaging in the right kinds of security assessments with mm-hmm. methodologies that best align with their desired outcomes what are your thoughts you are preaching to the choir right now that is that is the question that matters that absolutely is the question that matters wow so the, the way you actually framed the question first was, you know, we're assuming that most organizations are getting security assessments. Um, I, I hope that is true. Um, I guess it should be stated that that's assuming a, an organization has something worth protecting. That is actually an important item to note. So if you don't have something worth protecting, then like, oh, why would you invest in protecting? It doesn't matter. But assuming you do, I mean, someone who's listening to a show like this, you probably do. <laughs> right, you wouldn't be investing your time in listening to Ted ramble and tell random metaphors uh, if you didn't have something to protect. So we're assuming you have something to protect. You're getting these security assessments done, and the a real problem that I see. I mean, one of the motivations to want to write a book was because I saw this rampant problem all over the place, which is that. The way that we talk about security testing, and we, I'm talking about collectively the security community, but also those who engage with the security community, who hire security professionals to do security testing, we talk about it in very imprecise ways, and it winds up leading to some really bad outcomes. So what most people want when they're hiring security testing, uh, well, there are different motivations for why someone would go hire one uh, but they're usually something like well i need to prove it to someone else and i need to actually secure the thing so those are sometimes hopefully it's both sometimes it's just one like hey i need to prove i don't care what it is i need to prove it to someone else that i did a security test uh, but in but in the case of you know the more progressive companies definitely they're actually trying to improve the security of the system they're not just going through the motions but the problem is the way we talk about security testing is we use terms incorrectly all the time. So people often will ask for penetration testing. That's sort of the term that's become the catch-all. But penetration testing is a very specific type of thing. But complicating that problem, they're asking for penetration testing. They're usually sold something else. Like if you Google that term right now, almost all the results you're going to get, not all of them, but at least three quarters of them, are something else. They're going to be vulnerability scanning. They're not penetration testing. But then what makes it even more complicated is that what people actually need usually isn't actually penetration testing at all. What they usually need is what's called vulnerability assessments. And uh, I can definitely, I have, of course, I have metaphors. I can explain the difference between these, these three types. But the point that I want to leave on answering your question here is that those are three really different things. They entail different investments of time 
and money and person power, and they deliver different things. So when people are asking for something, they're getting something else, and yet they actually needed a third thing altogether. Have we actually achieved the mission, right? Have we actually accomplished what we set out to accomplish? And that is a really big problem. There are a few things that you've mentioned more than once now, and I believe it, it's worth reiterating, reemphasizing. And that is an organization needs to know or needs to have a good understanding of what it wants to secure and what are the tools, the methodologies, the techniques that's out there. Now, one is not expecting uh, an, an organization, especially smaller organizations, resource constrained, to have the kinds of uh, expertise to make those calls, but they need to reach out and get help. Again, you know, trying to follow your example of using a metaphor, it's like, when you go to a doctor and or you are you are thinking of going to a doctor because you feel there is an issue and so you're doing your best uh, due diligence possible uh, doing your searches you know talking to people getting advice so you have a planning process in place and it's important why is it important because it's your health and I like to use the health metaphor because when it comes to security, that's the security is the health of the organization. It is, uh, I, I believe that day is not far where we'll be ranking organizations on their um, uh, security health uh, rating. So therefore, developing an understanding of what the security needs are and who is the right person who can provide the help or who are the right people who can deliver the goods is absolutely mission critical. So therefore, mm -hmm. your points are very well made that to recognize what kind of help you need from a security standpoint, and that will immediately help align what you get by way of security um, mechanisms along with your overall organizational goals and strategies. So I just wanted to reemphasize that. Anything else you'd like to add to that? Well, just that the doctor-patient metaphor for security is so good. And there's so many aspects of that relationship that we can you know, tie back to security. And I'm just deciding whether or not to go down all those different rabbit holes right now. But I'll definitely tie back to to one or more of them as as we go but um if we want to use the doctor metaphor in the context of the question that you were asking about like how do we make sure we're getting the right thing uh I, I think it's that's actually a, maybe that's a good metaphor for us to use because it's like when people go into the doctor's office and they're like oh i checked on webmd my you know my symptoms or whatever and so they they've self-diagnosed so they go into the doctor and they're like, I need a, I don't know, insert jargon technical term right now. And the doctor's like, we'll get to that. Let me, let me instead evaluate your symptoms, see where we're at. And I'll tell you then, you know, what we need. But the problem that happens in security would be like, so doctors, I guess I don't know what I'm about to say for hundred percent certain because I am not a doctor. Um, but my understanding is that in medicine, a procedure has a name, and that's a universally understood procedure. 
the the problem with what's happening with security so let's say i don't know what the technical term would be let's just say it's called knee replacement you know someone goes in the, and and they're like i think i might you know my knees bother me i need some help with my knee and then a doctor is like you need a knee replacement the problem in security would be like when one doctor says knee replacement he means i'm going to replace your knee another doctor means i'm going to give you orange juice and a third doctor means i'm going to give you a physical and you're like these are all using the same term to describe really, really different things. And the patient doesn't know any better to like, cause the patient's going to the expert. That's why this is a real problem. Like if you went to the doctor and three different doctors said the same term, but they meant three different things, you probably wouldn't go to the doctor anymore. And that's why it is uh, such a significant problem. Yep. Very true. Um, you know, I, I authored a book, which, um, which was published by Sage last year on cybersecurity readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach. In that book, I, I presented a framework. It's called the Commitment, Preparedness, and Discipline Framework that uh, is associated with 17 cybersecurity readiness success factors. And I'm not going to um, go down that list, but I wanted your thoughts on some of them which I have found to be very important for an organization to secure themselves or get the resources they need to secure themselves. And one of those success factors hap happens to be hands-on top management. And it's a challenge out there uh, in terms of how to get top management attention, how to get top management actively engaged in cybersecurity planning, execution, monitoring, just curious because you're in the field and you are you and your company are engaging in engaging with numerous organizations what are you seeing out there in terms of top management commitment to information security well it's it's definitely becoming more and more of a priority for uh, executive leadership uh, I think you probably could have any number of security professionals on here to answer that question that would probably all say some version of the same thing, right? Which is like, security is a business problem, not a technical problem. Uh, we need to speak in the language of leaders, which is, you know, in, in terms of numbers and outcomes and, and all that stuff. And we need to make sure that we, you know, don't make it technical and, and all that. So I, I would say all those things too, but instead what I wanna share is, something that I see the most progressive organizations doing that are the ones who are getting it right. And they're currently in the minority. They're on, if we think about, you know, a bell curve, uh, they're on the early, early adopter side. And my hope is that eventually we're going to get the whole world thinking this way. And the way is this, most people think about security as avoid a bad thing, right? Let's not get hacked. Um, that is in fact a good way to think about security but it's incomplete. We also need to think about not just how do we avoid a bad thing, but how do we get a good thing? So not just how do we not get hacked, but how do we gain an advantage? And one of the things that is very, very obvious to me as I look at the companies really across industries, across sectors, the ones who do two things, first, actually secure their systems, and then second, in an authentic, incredible way, prove it. They gain this incredible competitive advantage over their competitors. So if that's a company, they're 
competing the way a company would, you know, for customers and market share. But there's other ways you can compete too, whether that's maybe you're a nonprofit and you need donors, maybe you're uh, a, a government and you need you know, political influence or whatever. People and companies and organizations, they want to do business with organizations that are secure. They want, trust is the foundation of it. So they trust someone, they're, they're gonna wanna work with them. Or at least if they don't trust them, they're gonna be hesitant to work with them. And so this is one of the things that I see executives at the more progressive organizations uh, capturing. They see it, they look at it and they're like, if we only think of security as a bad, avoid a bad thing, what we're gonna do is we're gonna make some risk-based decisions about, look, this is just a tax on the business. How do we reduce the tax to the right amount that it's not so low that we expose ourselves to huge risk, but we're not overspending. That's the way, that's the way most people actually think about security when it's the idea of avoid a bad thing. But now when you change the frame and you say, well, how do we get a good thing? How do we get this competitive advantage? Now you're looking at it as an investment. And you're saying it's no longer a cost center to reduce it's an advantage to optimize how do we spend in a way that helps us beat the competition how do we move faster how do we get more enterprises using us than someone else and i found that to be the thing that really gets leaders excited because it's no longer this like I'm, this is annoying i don't want to talk about this make make this problem go away that's why most people think about security now it's this oh wait a minute there is an untapped opportunity to gain a competitive edge no one else is doing it or not enough people are doing it talk to me about that that's what progressive organizations are doing right now brilliant absolutely brilliant i love the way you you put it one has to look at information security capability as a distinctive competency and yeah. focusing on developing the competency using that competency or leveraging that competency to achieve a competitive edge is the way to go the moment you are thinking of security, ah, that's one more thing we have to do. We don't have a choice. That really doesn't cut it. Rather taking a very optimistic approach and saying, yes, this is a, this is a problem. This is a constant issue that we have to deal with. So let's see, we can convert this so-called problem into an opportunity and be the best we can be in managing this risk. I, I love that kind of a mindset, that kind of an approach. And I'm sure people who are listening are making note of it. And I'm sure many, many organizations, many senior executives approach it that way. So, um, Ted, a couple of um, months ago, probably, um, in a podcast session, a renowned cybersecurity expert lamented that companies keep making the same mistakes over and over again. So I asked him, I said, what kind of mistakes are they making over and over again? And he talked about vulnerability management, patch management. Mm. And, you know, you being in the business, uh, leading a team of ethical hackers, I'm sure you see that a lot. What are your thoughts about what is so difficult or challenging about patch management, vulnerability management? that to use his words again that companies keep making the same mistakes hmm. well i definitely agree with the problem that companies continue making the same mistakes over and over again i would not limit it just to this particular issue of uh, patch management 
I'm a little befuddled myself as to why patch management continues to be such an issue. Uh, and that's not to diminish how hard it is. It's hard. Patch management is difficult. Um, what I, I, for me personally, <laughs> like if my job was to be in charge of patch management, I'd be terrible at it because what it requires for patch management are the kinds of things that like the, your brain needs to be wired in a certain way to excel at that. I think the kind of person who's really good at like, um, maybe accounting, the kind of person who wants to make sure that the numbers perfectly zero out and everything's like exactly in order the way that it should be, uh, patch management is kind of like that too. Like you, you have that absolute overriding drive for the perfection. But then you take that and you combine it with the fact that patches sometimes break systems and breaking systems gets in the way of uh, operational uptime and operational uptime in a lot of situations is uh, non-negotiable or operational downtime is not allowable. So there's all these complexities to it, but really I think that what's happening if we go broader than just patch management and we say well why do we keep making the same problem like same, making the same mistakes over and over and over again and i think it's because we don't necessarily truly understand the problem and we don't truly understand the solution and the we i'm describing here is the people who have the problem and certain corners of the security community who are willing to present the incorrect solution uh, we talked about penetration testing before, and that's a, a great example of where, um, you know, there are people willing to sell companies a penetration test that isn't a penetration test. They're willing to do that. Now, maybe they don't know that there's a difference. That's, neg uh, that's negligent. Or they do know there's a difference, and they're misrepresenting it anyway. That's irresponsible. So whichever it is, it's not good. But the problem, is that, that's a two-sided problem, right? That... Uh, companies who are building things, like we talked about before, it's not their every moment of every day working on how do you break things. They're looking to their expert partners to help them. And if the expert partner isn't actually presenting the appropriate solution, those two issues combined become this like kind of catastrophic problem. Yep. True. So here comes my final two questions. All right. First one is... Uh, what lessons do organizations refuse to learn? Have you come across anything like that? Do you have any thoughts on that? And I don't mean to stump you, so feel free to say, what's the next one? And I'm yeah. happy to throw out the <laughs> next one. No, I, I like that question actually a lot. I would, the way I would answer that though, is I don't think you could say there's a universal, there's not like one lesson that everybody refuses to learn. But within every organization, there is at least one lesson that everybody, that that organization refuses to learn. Um, the one that, as an example, that it saddens me, actually. It, I was going to say it irritates me or it angers me. I was like, what's the right word for this? But I think it saddens me is the way that sometimes politics work in large enterprises. Um, I've seen it happen time and time again where, you know, one executive will build a program in a certain way and that program is succeeding in some way. And then the next, you know, that executive either gets promoted or gets poached, goes somewhere else. And then the next executive comes in and the way that exec that new executive is going to quote unquote create their own fame, right, is going to 
create their opportunity to get promoted or get poached to go somewhere else, they need to do something unique. They can't just do what's already been done. And so that what do they have to do? They have to look at the, this program that's already been built and say, we're going to do it totally differently because I know a better way. But if it's already working, why are you tearing it down? And that is actually a pretty significant problem in corporate America today that that sort of political need, which I, I actually, I have no problem with someone needing to say, I need to make my mark on this organization so that I can make more money and provide more for my family. And like, what's wrong with that? That's amazing. But unfortunately, the way that it typically has to play out is by dismantling some other thing that already worked. And so now you have in these, it's kind of amazing when you see large enterprises, how inefficient they can be. Because every few years, as there's this turnover in you know, executive positions, um, you've, you're kind of starting things all over again. And I mean, how many people listening, right, work in a large enterprise and go through a reorganization like every three or four years? It, it, you're like, I'll just wait this out because by the time it actually is implemented, there's going to be a reorg, you know? Yep. So let me give you my answer to the question I posed to you. Mm. So, you know, two things happen. As you're probably aware, it is the medium-sized organizations that generally capitulate after a major cyber attack. They go out of business. There is data to support that. 60 to 70% of small and medium-sized enterprises cease to exist, which is a very rough consequence, probably yeah. the most severe consequence. But then there are large organizations, and again, I won't take any names here, who, for lack of a better word, made some very reckless mistakes that borderlines gross negligence and breaches happened. There were severe consequences, but they get bailed out for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. And that's where my concern lies, not that we're going to solve this problem here and neither am I trying for you to suggest what the solution should be, but that's where my concern is that when these organizations get bailed out, do they learn the lessons and they are, are they, you know, do they make the necessary changes? And these are not symbolic things that you put out there to impress the media and impress your investors, but it goes deeper into their processes, into how security is approached by the organization, whether security is built into their organizational culture. In my book, I talk about creating and sustaining a high performance information security culture. It's hard to do, but it is definitely something that organizations should, should strive towards. So that's from where I was coming when I asked you that question. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to say without being on the inside of every organization, right? Whether they've learned their lesson or not, but you see plenty of cool success stories, yeah. you know, um, in the aftermath of major breaches, including the industry around whoever the victim was, yeah. you know, um, the movie business is a great example. Sony, you know, went through that really very public, you know, that was, that was a real bummer, that that breach for everyone who, not just the people at Sony, but the people who work with Sony. And the uh, movie business is a, it's kind of a small world. Everyone kind of knows everyone. And, you know, there was a lot of, um, a lot of hearts went out for that. that. That was a really tough time for a lot of people. But it's really cool to see in the aftermath how um, the security programs at different studios got more funding, got more people, they got more sophisticated. And that's a cool aftermath. I mean, yeah, you don't want a company to go through what Sony went through. That's 
that's terrible. But if it has to happen, then let's make sure that some really positives result. And that's, that's definitely what's been happening. So I was, I was pretty cool. That was pretty cool to see that. That's great to hear. I'm glad you shared that with us. Uh, there, there are, I'm sure, many, many positive stories of recovery and, you know, coming back um, revitalized and in ways that has made the organization better. So that's good to hear. Mm-hmm. Hey, as much as I would like to, to keep talking with you, I've been enjoying this. Uh, you know, we are coming, um, getting to the end of our time here. So let's um, try to wrap things up uh, with you sharing any any final takeaways for the audience, any final thoughts for the audience? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely always like to end on a high note. And I, I feel like the story I just told was, was a high note. So there we go. You already have your high note. Uh, you know, we're seeing industries react really well in the aftermath of of breaches. But um, I think that I would just leave people with this fact that the security community is a passionate one that really is trying to improve things every day. Um, Ethical hackers included amongst that. And that to me is really exciting to live in it and to see it. And to those of you who maybe are wanting to join security or maybe you are not in security, but you work with security companies, just know that there's a really passionate group that's, that's moving forward. And yeah, I mean, that just, we can end on that note. And if anyone wants to know anything more about, you know, if any of the ideas we talked about, you wanted to ask me about personally, you want to follow me on social media, you want to know more about my book, you you want help with your security testing program, just hit me up. I'm easy to find at tedharrington.com and everything you could need to know is right there. Fantastic, Ted. Thank you again for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. A special thanks to Ted Harrington for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.